We're following uh, the history of Israel through the book of Judges. And in Judges chapter 8, we're continuing on with the story of Gideon. Now, last week you saw in Judges chapter 7, really the thrilling account of how God won a mighty victory in and through Gideon. And it really is one of the most impressive victories in the entire Bible, right? With just a relative handful of men. What was it, 300 men or something like that? A handful of men against a vast multitude. God used them with this absolutely crazy strategy. Pictures and torches and, you know, shouting and trumpets and all the rest of it. God used it to win a great victory at the moment. But you see, that was only one battle in a much bigger war. And it's kind of like you, you, you can win a victory at a moment, but what are you going to do with it? See, the, the Christian life, our life following after God, it isn't just about one victory here or there. It's about a life that has to be lived fighting this war. You know, uh, Al Davis, the famous football owner, who I guess passed away recently, right? He was famous for this phrase uh, for the Oakland Raiders, right? Just win, baby. That was it. Just win. That's the only. I wonder if he's saying that now, right? If that was the only important thing in life. I don't mean any comment on it. I have no idea the man or his eternal destiny or anything. But that, that mentality, the only thing important is, is winning. Listen, in God's kingdom, it's never enough to win one battle. Never. What are you going to follow up on it with? You, you see, maybe it's best to say this. Just winning at the moment isn't enough. Now, that's what Gideon did. He won at the moment and a glorious, glorious victory of faith with only 300 against a vast multitude. But what's going to become of that victory? That's what we see in Judges chapter 8. So verse 1. Now the men of Ephraim said to him, Why have you done this to us? By not calling us when you went to fight with the Midianites. And they reprimanded him sharply. So he said to them, What have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the vintage of Abazir? God has delivered into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb, and Zeb. And what I was able to do in comparison, what was I able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger towards him subsided when he said that. Verse 1, they reprimanded him sharply. The men of Ephraim joined in the fight against the Midianites when Gideon called them out. That, that was in the very last part of Judges chapter 7. Verses 24 and 25. Yet they were upset that Gideon didn't call them before the battle started. The several thousand that he gathered together at the battle and the 300 that it was winnowed down to, none of those guys were from the tribe of Ephraim. Matter of fact, Judges chapter 6 tells us that they were from the tribes of Manasseh. Now, by the way, that was Gideon's own tribe, the tribe of Manasseh. They were from the tribes of Manasseh, the tribes of Asher, Zebdalan, and Naphtali. Now, these tribesmen, these men of Ephraim, they were jealous. Hey, we wanted the glory of being part of those guys who broke the pitchers and shone forth the torches. We, we wanted in on that glorious battle. And Gideon, since you didn't call us earlier, you deprived us of the glory of being in on that. Let me say this. 
It seems to me like the men of Ephraim cared more about recognition than they did about the overall good of Israel. You see, instead of being jealous about the recognition that other people received, they should have just been happy that God's people were rescued and that they had some role in the whole thing. You know, it's true, friends. Jealousy often hinders the work of God. A desire for recognition often hinders the work of God. And right here we're asking this question. Yes, there was a great battle won with Gideon and the 300 men and all of that. Praise the Lord. But how is that victory going to be followed up on? I tell you, a lot of things that will hinder a work of God, a lot of things that will hinder a victory of the Lord, is when there is an ungodly desire for recognition, for vain glory. Friends, I would just tell you, it's, you know, I, 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 feel, I feel funny saying this. I honestly do. Because somebody could look at me and they say, well, look at you, David. Look at all the recognition you get. Here you are. You're standing in front of a bunch of wonderful people who really want to hear the word of God. Isn't that plenty of recognition? It, you know, how can you say people shouldn't want recognition? All I can say is I, I really feel like I know what it's like to serve God in quiet, anonymous ways. And let me tell you, a lot of times that's better. It really is. If you think about that, the satisfaction ministry is found in the recognition you get for it. You really don't know much about satisfaction ministry. Because to the height that you're going to be all wound up and excited. Anyway, I'm getting wound up and excited. I got to moderate myself. My voice isn't going to make it if I don't. Okay. To the extent that you get all wound up and excited over these things over the praise that you get or the recognition you get, you're going to be crushed when you don't get it. And listen, it's better just to come to that place where you say, listen, recognized or unrecognized, I'm serving Jesus Christ. And so I'm not going to be dissuaded from the battle whether or not I get recognition or not. Now, listen, oftentimes, listen, oftentimes it's a good and wonderful thing to recognize those who are serving the Lord. And sometimes there are people who deserve recognition and who don't get it. Honestly so. But, you know, if you're one of those people, you've got to learn how to just forget about it. And say, no, I'm doing it unto the Lord. And isn't there something really glorious about doing something good for God that's hidden before other people? It's just wonderful. Something very soul-satisfying in that. Something that the men of Ephraim didn't seem to know. Well, notice what Gideon did in comparison to them. Verse 2, he says, what have I done now in comparison with you? Gideon didn't challenge their pride. Instead, he soothed their pride by complimenting them and giving them the recognition that they seemed to crave. It's like, oh, you guys from Ephraim, you're so great. You guys are just the best. I mean, that the grapes of Ephraim are better than anybody else's. Come on, guys. Now, honestly, this was probably wise for Gideon to do. Because you know what? A battle was on. And, and he needed the hands in the fight. And so he was appealing to the men of Ephraim. Do your job. I'll praise you. I'll honor you. I'll give you the recognition you crave so much. Just join in with me on the fight. i got to say this. It may very well be, though, 
that Gideon seemed to have a continuing controversy with the men of Ephraim that we're going to talk about a little bit later in the text tonight. Let's go on here, verse 4. When Gideon came to the Jordan, he and the 3,000, excuse me, he and the 300 men who were with him crossed over, exhausted but still in pursuit. Then he said to the men of Succoth, Please give me loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted, and I am pursuing Zeba and Zalmunna, kings of Midian. And the leaders of Sukkoth said, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna now in your hand, that we should give bread to your army? Now notice this, it's very interesting. We find two other things characteristic here, things that I think really hinder a victory from the Lord. The first thing that we saw that will hinder a victory from God is an ungodly desire for recognition. The second thing I think will hinder a victory from God is that just plain exhaustion and weariness in the work. Did you see that in verse 4? He and the 300 men who were with him crossed over exhausted but still in pursuit. You can imagine how tired they were. They fought hard and they pursued the enemy over a long distance. Friends, let me tell you, serving God and especially Fighting the battles you're going to fight when you're serving the Lord, it can be exhausting. It can drain everything from you. I like something that Charles Spurgeon said here. I'll quote Spurgeon at this point. He said this, If you, dear brethren and sisters, will give yourselves wholly to God's work, although you will never get tired of it, you will often get tired in it. If a man has never tired himself working for God, I should think that he's never done any work worth doing. You know what? I, I got to agree with him. You know, this is something that I would talk about with our Bible college students when I was in Germany. Young men who wanted to serve God, maybe as pastors or other way, or young women who really wanted to give their lives in service to the Lord. And I said, one of the things that you're just going to have to deal with is being weary from the work that you do. Now, I'm not saying that you're supposed to be, you know, stupid about this and and work yourself to the, to the place of some kind of nervous breakdown or something. But you're just going to have to accept that, you know what? You're probably not going to get as much sleep as you want to get if you're really going to be serious about serving God. You're either going to be getting up early or staying up late or sometimes a combination of both. Because it's hard to find the time to do everything that you need to do in serving the Lord. It's hard to find time to fulfill all your responsibilities. And um, this is just something that, that people who want to give their lives in service to God need to recognize. There's something else that Spurgeon said I think is pretty powerful here. He said, when he says this, let us also serve the Lord when every movement is painful, when to even think is wearisome. These men were faint, yet to go on running when you're ready to faint, to keep right on when you're ready to drop, this is very trying work, yet let us do it, brethren, by God's grace." Some people only pray when they feel like praying. We need most to pray when we feel that we cannot pray. If we were to only to preach, some of us, when we felt like preaching, we should not often preach. And there's just something to that, where there's something of a death to self that comes when you're serving God. And that death to self will come in many different ways. But one of the ways is just pressing through when you're weary, when you're tired. Well, sadly, some people are wondering, 
But God bless Gideon and his men. They pressed on. They, they were, were ready to press on through the midst of it. But did you see what happened? They asked the men of the city of Sukkoth, they said, hey, give us some, you know, bread to help us in the midst of this fight. We're exhausted. We need some strength, some replenishment. What does it say? Verse 5, he said, please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me. And did you see what they replied in verse 6? They said, are the hands of Ziba and Zalmunna now in your hands that we should give bread to your army? You see, instead of helping Gideon and his men at this point, the people of Sukkoth said, hey, uh, you haven't won the battle already, have you? Come back when you've won the battle. That's when we'll be happy to help you out. Now listen, friends, they needed the help. <clears throat> Excuse me, they needed the help before they won the battle, did they not? That was the critical time. That was the critical point. And it was to the everlasting shame and the very soon disadvantage of the men of Sukkoth, as we're going to see, that they did not help them in this time. By the way, in my mind, that's sort of a third hindrance to fulfilling God's victory, dealing with a lack of generosity and support. You know, we, we should be more generous and helpful to those who are doing the work and fighting the battle. But another question is, are you going to continue on and fight, though, with other, though other people who should be helping you aren't? I mean, that's exactly what Gideon had to deal with. Can't you imagine that Gideon would have felt like giving up? Man, we're doing the hard work of fighting the battle. We're fighting on behalf of the, of the, of the people of Israel against the Midianites. And what's happening? The people of Sukkoth are not helping us at all. Well, friends, Gideon had to have that determination. I'm going to fight on even though they don't help us. Even though those who should be helping, even though those who should be supporting, they're not. We're going to continue on and see the work of God done. Well, we can suppose that it was very discouraging for Gideon and for those fighting the battle. They didn't ask the people of Sukkoth and Peniel to fight on the front lines. They only wanted help to, so that they could do the fighting. And they were unwilling to help them, and they made excuses. But Gideon kept on with the battle. But I have to say this. When I think about those three hindering things, the desire for recognition and vainglory, secondly, the inability to fight through weakness and fatigue. And third, a lack of support and generosity. Those are three hindering things that will cripple any victory for the Lord. When I think about those three hindering things, I think about the greatness of Jesus' victory for us. I mean, think about it. Jesus humbled himself, and he did nothing out of a desire for recognition or vainglory. Secondly, Jesus fought through weariness and fatigue, did he not? Was there anybody more spent in his work of redeeming mankind than Jesus was throughout all his ministry and finally at the cross? And then finally, did not Jesus fight through, though no one supported him? No one helped him at his hour of need? Didn't everybody forsake him at the end? See, I think it's glorious that, that we see that these are three areas that we often are tested in, and sometimes we succeed in them, and sometimes we fail, don't we? But our Savior Jesus has always succeeded in those three things. And we look to Him to win His victory in us and through us. It just makes us say, thank you, Jesus, for your great victory through us, for us. It's your work on our behalf, and we praise you for that. Well, coming now, starting at verse 7. So Gideon said... 
For this cause, when the Lord has delivered Zebon Zalmunna into my hand, then I will tear your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. Then he went up from there to Penuel, and he spoke to them the same way. And the men of Penuel answered him as the men of Succoth had answered. So he also spoke to the men of Penuel, saying, When I come back in peace, <coughs> I'm going to tear down this tower. i got to say, I admire the faith of Gideon. He looks at these guys who aren't supporting him in the work. And what does he say? He says, listen, guys, I'm going to win this battle. And when I come back in peace, when this battle's done, I'm going to make you pay for not supporting us. Now, I'm not suggesting anything like that. But look, he just makes it really clear. This is old covenant stuff, not new covenant. (laughs) Jesus tells us a different way that we should deal with, right? So I don't want to hear anybody saying, well, you didn't help me in my time. You know, I'm going to, well, look at what Gideon did. Verse, it's a little bit later, verse 10. Now, Ziba and Zalmunna were at Karkar, and their armies with them, about 15,000, all who were left of the army of the people of the east, for 120,000 men who drew the sword had fallen. Then Gideon went up by the road of those who dwell in tents on the east of Neboah and Jogboah, and he attacked the enemy while the camp felt secure. When Ziba and Zalmunna fled, he pursued them, and he took the two kings of Midian, Ziba and Zalmunna, and routed the whole army. Isn't that glorious? In verse 11, he attacked the army while the camp felt secure. Gideon continued in the boldness of the Lord and led a courageous surprise attack. You know, it's as if that glorious battle that we saw in chapter 7, with the torches and the trumpets and all the rest of it, That glorious battle gave them the courage to press forward and to battle more. Please remember, that glorious battle of chapter 7, that was just the beginning. God wanted to follow it up with victory after victory. I believe the same principle applies in my walk with God and your walk with God, don't you? Has the Lord won some glorious battles in your life? I believe he has. You know what? He wants to follow it up with more and more. And the same things that have seen God win victory in your life before... We'll do it again. And that's exactly what we see here with Gideon. He's stepping out in faith. He's being bold. He's seeing the work of God done. Verse 12, he pursued them and routed the whole army. That was the great persistence of Gideon. He said, listen, I'm going to fight until the battle's won. And I'm going to go after the leaders of the opposition. I'm going to fight this to win it. And that's the same attitude God wants us to have in our walk with him. Now, verse 13 Then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from battle, from the ascent of Harris. And he caught a young man of the men of Sukkoth and interrogated him. And he wrote down from the leaders of Sukkoth and its elders. Uh Uh-oh, 27 men, or 77 men. Then he came to the men of Sukkoth and said, Here are Ziba and Zalmunna, about whom you ridiculed me, saying, Are the hands of Ziba and Zalmunna now in your hand, that we should give bread to your weary men? And he took the elders of the city and thorns of the wilderness and briars, And with them he taught the men of Sukkoth. Then he tore down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. Wow. Now please, let me say, God, I don't think, is putting his stamp of approval on this. But he's telling you the facts of what happened. Gideon was not pleased that these men would not support him, would not help him at the necessary time. Friends, I think this just speaks to us about there's a price that we pay when we don't join in God's work at that necessary moment. Look, there's just times when there's a need, when there's a necessary time, when a call goes in and says, yes, we need to help with this. And listen, nobody's going to whip anybody with thorns. 
Nobody's going to pull down any towers. Man, that's old covenant stuff. Thank the Lord we belong to a new covenant. But you know, I just got to say that God wants us to step up to the plate. God wants us to be able to see and to recognize it's a strategic moment. Because there's some moments more strategic than others. There just are. And when that moment comes, you say, yes, Lord, I'm here to serve you. We just need to be able to see when God is, is, is breaking with a wave and say, that's it. Now, you, you got the good heavens. This is sound bar, but we know the surfer mentality, do we not? True surfer mentality. I mean, you might have a job, right? You might go to school. But if there's a swell in, what are you doing, right? You just drop everything and you say, okay, it surfs up. Forget about my job. Forget about school. Whatever, right? There's a swell. I mean, and, and every surfer understands this. It's like there's not a well. Of course, I mean, of course he's not at work today. There's a swell in. Oh, okay. Everybody just understands this. Well, listen. There's a, there's a sense in our walk with God when we sense God is bringing in something that needs to be exploited for His kingdom. When it's just one of those, yes, let's come together at this strategic moment and do it. And listen, when you're sensitive to the Holy Spirit, when the call goes to that, you just respond. You say, yes, now's the time. I'll rearrange some things. I'll work some priorities. But now's the time to do this. And friends, all I can say is, I don't lay this down any part of law or anything, but just listen to the Spirit of God. Pray about such things. And at that strategic moment, step forward because... Well, it's just a terrible price. Did you see what he said? I, I saw this. What, it's so amazing. Verse 16, it says that he taught them with the thorns. Well, I bet he taught them a lesson. Whipped them with thorns, for heaven's sakes. But that was a very painful lesson for them to learn. Going on now, verse 18. And he said to Ziba and Zalmunna, What kind of men were they whom you killed at Tabor? So they answered, As you are, so they were, each one resembled the son of a king. So he said, they were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had let them live, I would not kill you. And as he said to Jether, his firstborn, rise, kill them. But the youth would not draw his sword, for he was afraid because he was still a youth. So Ziba and Zalmunna said, rise yourself and kill us. For as a man is, so is his strength. So Gideon arose and killed Ziba and Zalmunna. And took the crescent ornaments that were on their camel's necks. Well, apparently, these two kings, Ziba and Zalmunna, they had murdered the brothers of Gideon. Now, please remember, for years before this, the Midianites had raided the Israeli encampments, right? They had raided and stolen. And you can just imagine that Gideon's brothers were two men that stood up to um, these Midianite kings, and they were murdered by them. So when Gideon finally has the chance with them, he delivers some justice to them. He says, you guys know that you murdered my brothers, and they understood from this. Listen, it's a code of the desert. It's just justice. We have to die because we murdered this guy's brothers. And poor Gideon's son, right? He couldn't do it. Couldn't bring himself to do it. He was just a youth. You can imagine what a difficult thing it would be for a youth to draw his sword and actually kill. I mean, listen... Killing with a sword isn't like shooting a guy with a firing squad, right? Killing a man with a sword, you got to get right up close and personal and do some real cutting. I mean, it's a, it's a brutal thing. The youth couldn't do it. And Ziba and Zalmunna, verse 21, rise yourself and kill us. They knew what they deserved. So they said to Gideon, go ahead, you do it. And they took their punishment. Now, 
That was the end of the battle. And the battle was won. And God turned the tide against the Midianites. And it was a glorious season of victory for Israel. As we're going to see, they enjoyed many years of peace under Gideon's leadership. But Gideon's leadership after the great war with Midian wasn't as good as his leadership during the great war with Midian. As we read verse 22. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, both you and your son and your grandson also, for you have delivered us from the hand of Midian. But Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. The desire for a human king over Israel started very early in Israel's history. Now, we're not going to see that it comes to fruition until hundreds of years later during the days of Samuel. During the days of Samuel, you remember that, right? When the people of Israel say, we want a king just like all the other nations. Well, finally, God will give them a king in the days of Samuel. But here you see the impulse at work hundreds of years before. Because when they say to Gideon, we want you to rule over us, we want your son to rule over us, and we want your grandson to rule over us, what are they asking for? They're asking for a hereditary monarchy, right? Where somebody passes on the rule to their son and their grandson and so on. Well, uh, Gideon very wonderfully and wisely says in verse 23, I will not rule over you. That was a good response from Gideon. He understood that it was not his place to take the throne over Israel and that the Lord God was king over Israel. Listen, friends, that's how it should ever be, that we should keep our eyes on Jesus Christ as our king, Jesus Christ as our leader. You know, there are many, many beautiful titles for Jesus in the scriptures. But, you know, one of the most glorious, glorious titles, actually, I'll give you two titles that are given in the New Testament for Jesus, the good shepherd and the chief shepherd. Now, friends, do you know what the word pastor means? The word pastor means shepherd, right? And, and I believe I am called as a pastor. I don't doubt that at all. I, I believe that is my calling. and I believe I, I try to minister and serve in that calling. And, and we have a, a, a staff here of pastors and wonderful men who serve this congregation and serve the Lord in this pastoral capability. But something I always try to remember, and our pastoral staff tries to remember, there is one good shepherd and there is one chief shepherd, right? Jesus Christ is our pastor. Jesus Christ is our king. This is his church. It belongs to him. There's no man who's a king or a monarch over this congregation. Jesus Christ is the ruler. And all we can do is we just want to look to Jesus and try to discern his guidance and discern his cues and follow after King Jesus together. I like something that G. Campbell Morgan said. It's very powerful. He said, This is the true attitude of all those whom God has raised up to lead and deliver his people. Their leadership must ever stop short of sovereignty. Their business is never that of or superseding the divine rule, but interpreting it and of leading the people to recognition of it and submission to it. This is true not only of kings, but also of priests, prophets, and preachers. I would underline preachers in that quote from G. Camel Morgan. Friends, we need to look to King Jesus. 
and let him be Lord and let him rule among us. Now, praise God that Gideon gave the right answer when he said that he didn't want to be king. Gideon definitely gave the right answer when he said that he didn't want to be king. Yet in the rest of the chapter, he's going to act like a king. Now, here's the point. His words were humble, but his actions were not. It's much easier to talk about humility than it is to really live it. It's easier to talk about serving the Lord than actually do it. When I stand up here and talk about Jesus being king, when I just talk about being humble before the Lord, I'm the first one to say it's a lot easier to talk about it here than it is to live it. Oh, but with my heart, I want to live it, and I want us to live it together as a congregation before the Lord. But look at Gideon right here, verse 24. Then Gideon said to them, I would like to make a request of you that each of you would give me the earrings from his plunder. For they had gold earrings because they were Ishmaelites. So they answered, we'll gladly give them. And they spread out a garment, and each man threw it into the earrings from his plunder. Now the weight of the gold earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold, besides the crescent ornaments, pendants, and purple robes, which were on the kings of Midian, besides the chains that were on the camel's necks. And we all know those big chains that are around the camel's necks. I'm joking. I don't know what kind of chains go around the neck of a camel. That didn't seem like it was that much to ask for, right? Just give me the earrings from your plunder. I mean, I don't want to sound gross about this, but there were a lot of dead Midianite soldiers, right? A lot of captured ones. Well, they took everything of value from both the dead and the captured. And since they were Ishmaelites, there were a lot of gold earrings. I guess the Ishmaelites wore a lot of gold earrings. So they took them and they said, well, Gideon said, well, just, just give me this. Just, just the gold earrings. So they did it down and it came down. It all came up to a lot of gold. Do you know how much all those shekels or whatever it was of gold were? That's about 50 pounds of gold. Now, today's price is that you're doing pretty good with 50 pounds of gold, are you not? That's quite a fortune for Gideon. Now, the people were happy to give it. And it's hard to say that Gideon didn't deserve this huge fortune. I mean, after all, he's the guy who led that Israel into this amazing victory over the Midianites, right? On the one hand, we say, yeah, I can understand it. Yeah, it can be justified. Yes, but at the same time, as we're going to see in the following verses, it leaves a very bad taste in our mouth. It was inappropriate. Because now instantly Gideon is not one of the people. He's far above higher than the people. And friends, this is a problem sometimes, is it not? When, when those who, who are in ministry and, and, and they make their living, uh, their, their, their food and their table and, and their house and stuff is provided you know, by the, the generous giving of God's people. If they're to live at such a higher level than the people of God, then that's a real problem. And that's, it seems, what Gideon was doing right here. But what was much worse was not just the amount of money that Gideon received, but what he did with it. Look at there in verse 27. Then Gideon made it into an ephod and set it up in his city, Ophrah. And all Israel played the harlot with it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his house. An ephod is a shirt-like garment 
worn by the priests of Israel. Read Exodus chapter 28 if you're curious about what an ephod is and what it does. Exodus 28. Now, what Gideon did was obviously wrong. And it's not immediately apparent why Gideon did this. The only thing I could say was, first of all, he obviously had too much money on his hands, right? If you have the money to, to you know, make a golden ephod that people are going to treat like an idol, you got too much money. So that, that was when he had the opportunity from the money. But secondly, I would say that this was a manifestation of his ongoing controversy with the men of Ephraim. Remember at the beginning of the chapter how Gideon was going at it with the men of Ephraim? How they weren't getting along and they were arguing back and forth and they were being all, well, we want the recognition and the credit. And Gideon was like, well, just join in with me in the battle. He was battling back and forth with the men of Ephraim. Well, friends, at this time, the tabernacle of God with the altar of God and the Ark of the Covenant and all of the rest, it was in Ephraim. It was at the city of Shiloh and Shiloh is in the territory of Ephraim. It may very well be that what Gideon was doing was setting up a rival shrine in the territory of Manasseh because he didn't like people going to Ephraim to worship God. That's the nearest thing of a reason that I can give that why Gideon would do this. And, and it was bad. And so it says right there, it's very painful in verse 27 to read these words. All Israel played the harlot with it there. The people of Israel enjoyed this idolatrous worship. The beautiful and the expensive ephod became a snare to Gideon, to his family, and to all of Israel. Now listen, I don't have any doubt that that ephod was beautiful to look at. Can you just picture it there? You know, there it is in a nice, well-lit tent, you know, and it's lifted up and it's gold, it sparkles, and maybe it has some artistic paint and surroundings on it. And everybody looks at the ephod and they go, ooh, you know, isn't this glorious? And then maybe some priest comes and he puts the ephod on. Everybody says, ooh, isn't he beautiful in the ephod? And look at him offer the sacrifice and all the rest of it. Friends, artistic beauty has a way of impressing us and giving a sense of awe. But it isn't always a godly impression of awe. Many times, artistic beauty can distract our focus from the Lord. You see, in contrast to this ephod, God commanded that his altars be made of unfinished stone. Do you realize that? It's in Exodus chapter 20, verse 25. God says, I want you to make my altars out of rough stone. Do you know why? Because God didn't want anybody to be thinking that when, when the, there he is at the altar, there's the priest offering the sacrifice at the altar. Nobody wanted, God didn't want anybody looking at them and go, that is the most beautifully carved altar I've ever seen in my life. Look at the skill of the stone carver. Oh my heavens, the artist, that's just gorgeous. Now, even though there is a place for art, is there not? Even though God wants to lift us up, God is, I think God is for artistic beauty and expression. But what he's saying is, in my worship, the focus needs to always be on me. And whatever artistic expression there is, whatever expression of beauty there is, it needs to be used to draw focus to the Lord and not to distract away from him. Now listen, 
Gideon as a man, he was remarkably obedient. I, I don't know if I've ever been as obedient in my life as Gideon was to go out and do what he did at the Battle of Midian. Gideon was filled with faith. I don't know if I've ever had the faith that Gideon had to go up there with a bunch of the guys and, you know, bang a pot and put out a torch and yell the sword of the Lord and Gideon. That's faith. But listen, what Gideon had with his obedience and his faith in that extreme moment of battle did not necessarily carry over to a daily life with God. It seems like with Gideon, the routine of daily living was a greater test of his character than the extreme moment of battle. And friends, this is true for many people. Well, I, I don't know. I'll, I'll just use this example. You, uh, you, you go out on a, on a missions team, on an outreach team for a missions trip. Boy, we would see this at the Bible college all the time, right? Every semester we'd send out outreach teams. We'd send us some crazy places. We sent outreach teams to Iraq. We sent outreach teams to other just crazy places, Rome, and they got their vans stolen and pickpockets and all the rest all the time. It's, you know, it's, it was real steps of faith to go out and do these things. And, and, and you, you see God and you just trust God in that moment of extreme battle, right? And you see God do amazing things in the midst of the battle. Praise the Lord. And it's just wonderful. You come in, it's just an amazing high but you find it so hard to walk with God every day at your job or at the school or, or you know, in, in the neighborhood, whatever it would be. In the extreme moment of battle, you rise to the occasion. Yes. But in the daily routine, it's so easy to forget about God. Friends, I recognize myself in this. Does anybody recognize yourself in this? It's like, oh, Jesus, help us. Gideon could do so wonderful in that extreme moment of battle, but where he had his great difficulty, what was just in the daily routine afterwards. And this is the truth for many of us. Well, it got worse for Gideon. Look at verse 28. Thus Midian was subdued before the children of Israel so that they lifted their heads no more. And the country was quiet for 40 years in the days of Gideon. Praise the Lord, right? Now go on. Then Jerubbabel, the son of Joash, went and dwelt in his own house. Gideon had 70 sons who were his own offspring, for he had many wives. Now, those many wives were another manifestation of pride on the part of Gideon, of him acting like a king, right? He said, I don't want to be a king. I'm not your king. But then he kind of went on to act like one. And it's taking a harem and having 70 sons. That's another manifestation of it. You know, for, for in those ancient cultures, having that many sons and such, and that, having that many wives, as much as anything, it was a manifestation of the idea that, that I'm so wealthy and I'm so influential that I can support this many people, and I am a great man who can do this. Now, some people wonder about polygamy in the Old Testament, and without going into an in-depth study, let me just lay it on you. The Bible does not specifically condemn polygamy in the Old Testament. Now, there is a specific command against polygamy in the New Testament. Do you know what that one is? Jesus specifically said it. Jesus condemned polygamy when he said, no man can have two masters. That's a joke. Do you get it? 
Come on, people. That's a good one. No, actually, the idealization of, of for leadership in the church that a man should be the husband of one wife. In addition to that, Jesus emphasized in his teaching on marriage that a man should leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. Looking at Adam and he, friends, how many wives did Adam have? One. And that's the ideal that's pointed for him. By the way, Jesus pointed out when he said, from the beginning was it not so. God gave them this pattern from the very beginning. Now, many people are upset at this. They say, then why doesn't the Old Testament, getting wound up again, why doesn't the Old Testament specifically condemn polygamy in stronger terms? I say, listen, you just look at polygamous families in the Old Testament. Whenever you're given a vision into family life of a polygamous family, in the Old Testament, it's a mess, an absolute mess. Look at uh, the children of Israel, right? The children of Jacob. Look at those. Boy, that's a great family life, isn't it? Look at the children of David, right? Wow, that's a winner family life. The most horribly dysfunctional families in the Bible are the product of polygamous families. And, and the Bible's showing us something very powerful that Jesus very specifically spoke of when he said, from the beginning, was it not so that God ordained that a man should leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two should become one flesh? How many? The two, not the three, four, five, whatever. The two should become one flesh. Well, going on, verse 31. And his concubine who was in Shechem also bore him a son, whose name he called Abimelech. Now Gideon, the son of Joash, died at a good old age, and was buried in the tomb of Joash's father in Ophrah of the Abirzites. Now, he called the name of this son Abimelech in verse 31. The name Abimelech means, you ready for this? My father a king. Now, please, Gideon. Do you see what Gideon did? Oh, Gideon, please be our king. No, I won't be your king. He said the right words, but he didn't follow through with the right action. And ends up naming this one particular son, my father, a king. And it seems that Gideon intended that his son would become the leader of Israel after Gideon himself was gone. It says in verse 32 that he died at a good old age. Through his career, we see that Gideon was a man who slipped from great heights of faith. Yes, Gideon was a great man of faith and he fell down to a place of what seemed to be outright apostasy and rebellion against God. Let me say this. The story of Gideon is the story of many men and women in God's kingdom. You know what it was? He could handle adversity better than he could handle success. In the adversity of the trial, at the extreme moment there in the battle against Midian, he shined like a man of God. In the years of success following that, his heart was drawn more and more away from the Lord. Friends, let me tell you, it isn't enough for you to begin well with God. You must continue on throughout your whole Christian life. And Gideon, in his later years, had to look back to see anything done for God. All those works were in the past. No, I don't doubt that I'm speaking to, to people tonight 
You've served the Lord. You've honored God. You live for his life. I'm just asking, how far back do you got to look to find anything for that? I hope you, you don't have to look. I hope you can look at the life right now and see a place where you're giving glory to Jesus Christ, where you're honoring him, where you're following hard after him, where it could be said of you, which could not be said of Gideon, you're finishing well in what God has given you to do. Listen, if, if you're off to a good start with your walk with God, Wonderful. Praise God. But a good start isn't enough. You need to continue on and finish well. Verse 33. So it was, and this is a sad aftermath. So it was, as soon as Gideon was dead, that the children of Israel again played the harlot with the Baals and made Baal Bereth their God. Thus the children of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hands of all their enemies on every side, nor did they show kindness to the house of Jerubbabel, Gideon, in accordance with the good that he had done for Israel. It says that they made Baal Bereth their God. Do you know what Baal Bereth means? It means Baal of the covenant. Sad to say, in the up and down, in the progress and decline cycle that is so often characteristic of the book of Judges, in this period of decline, they looked to Baal to be the God of the covenant for them. Friends, that's shameful. Baal can't satisfy. Ashtoreth can't satisfy. Only the Lord God can satisfy. So it's evidence that Gideon didn't finish well. And it just reminds us that even the best heroes of the Bible are flawed. Even the best heroes of the Bible needed a savior. Even the best heroes of the Bible, by their need for a savior and by their own flaws, they point us towards a perfect Messiah, Jesus Christ. Do you want to talk about finishing well? I don't think you can finish any better than it is finished. Isn't that the most outstanding finishing well that you could ever think of? And his finishing well, his it is finished. Friends, that is our salvation. That is our rescue. He is the captain of our salvation. And we just need to draw close to him and let him do his work of conviction and exhortation and encouragement in our hearts so we'll draw near to him. Let's pray.